Hey, brothers, this is Didact, and the Didactic Mind podcast is back. This is episode 112, The Itchy Red Blanket. A very warm welcome to my long-time, long-suffering Podbean subscribers. Very warm welcome to all of my readers from the site. Thank you very much indeed for your patience. I would like to say I've been busy, but honestly, I haven't. Um, I've been lazy more than anything else. Uh, the last several weeks have just been kind of at a loose end in terms of work, but I have actually been busy with other things, planning a bit of a vacation. And I will actually be off uh, for the next couple of weeks to the east, as it turns out. I will be returning to Russia for uh, about 10 days, and then we'll be traveling in uh, Central Asia, one of the Central Asian republics, for a little bit. And I have to say, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, it is going to be a great trip, I think. I will be visiting one of the Southern Russian republics, one of the Islamic Southern Russian republics, actually, uh, of all places. And we'll be looking forward to providing some of my thoughts when I return about what I've seen and what I've heard, what I've come across, because I think there is a whole lot of misinformation and nonsense out there about the nature of Russia at the moment. And I do see it as my mission in life, or one of my God-given missions, to act as something of a bridge between East and West. And I'm not trying to be arrogant when I say that. I mean, I've prayed on this a lot. I've tried to understand exactly what it is the big fella upstairs has in mind for me. And it's very clear that for whatever reason, my purpose in life seems to be to bridge the growing divide between the people of the East who really just want to live their own lives on their own terms and the people of the West who have fallen into backwardness, degeneracy, paganism, neo-paganism, really, nonsense, outright heresy and evil and are rapidly giving up their rights. And I think when I get back from Russia and from the Far East, well, not that Far East, but the East, I should have some interesting impressions to convey because it's been about three years since I've been to the region and it has been a long time coming and I'm delighted to be able to to go back there. Uh, so I'm very, very happy to be on my way, uh, which I will be departing shortly, but uh, I figured I might as well take a little bit of time to rectify the lack of content on the site and the podcast for the last couple of weeks uh, with a fresh update. Just to be clear, because I'm going to be on vacation and I'm going to be basically in the mountains somewhere for a a little while. Updates will be scant and sketchy. It's quite likely the Monday post will, in fact, not be published on Monday, if at all. Uh, the Friday posts will may follow, they may not, who knows, we'll, we'll see. But uh, I am going to be pretty tied up for a little while, and quite happily so. I mean, this is the first vacation I've had, first proper vacation I've had in, oh, seven months. So... I'm very much looking forward to getting out there and, and doing my own thing for a while. 
And uh, <clears throat> uh, what I'd like to talk about today is the return of kind of this idea of socialism. Uh, the, the idea of communism is making a comeback. And this, I think, is very foolish and very stupid. And I wanted to address that. And before I get to that, obviously, you know, seeing as how I'm going to be traveling very soon to a part of the world where access to information is difficult and is challenging, this is kind of the exactly the scenario for which a VPN is exactly what you need. As I've always pointed out, take a look at Surfshark uh, and Atlas VPN, two solutions I strongly recommend. Uh, one I, once I get back, I'll give you some idea of how easy or difficult it is to access financial products and services when traveling eastwards, because obviously when you go to Russia, Visa, MasterCard, and Amex don't work. So you have to find a way around that, and that is tricky. It is difficult. <clears throat> so I hope to be able to provide some insight into that, and um, I can, you know, hopefully provide some context and some some useful um, workarounds for those who are interested in in making the journey themselves over time. So, the reason behind this podcast has to do with <clears throat> some of the sentiments that I've been seeing popping up from. People like, well, for example, Jackson Hinkle, a young chap, very enterprising, very bright. Uh, he, he has a very large following and a, a good-sized platform on Rumble because YouTube has banned him outright. First, they demonetized him. Then, <clears throat> well, they, they demonetized him. They haven't banned him outright, I don't think. Um, or have they? I can't remember. I think they have banned him, actually, because he is exclusively on Rumble these days. Um, yeah, no, no, he is, he's still on YouTube, so he's just, he's completely demonetized, that's right. Uh, he's still on YouTube, but he doesn't make any money from it, so obviously he goes through Locals and uh, Rumble itself. If you're interested in kind of a young-based Gen Z's take on modern geopolitics, check out Jackson Hinkle's uh, stuff. I like him, for what it's worth, I think he's always got an interesting point of view. Uh, he is, in fact, he is dating a Russian, and good for him. Uh, not just any Russian either, a, an international model Russian who was the winner of, or a finalist in some beauty pageant. Don't quote me on this, but she, uh, Miss Anna Linnikova, I think it is. Uh, very beautiful, very attractive, very uh, accomplished young lady. So, uh, good for him, but he's he's been he's been making statements like, for example, when he appeared on um, Piers Morgan's show on Piers Morgan, whatever it's called, uh, that that guy's show, and he kind of debated a little bit with Konstantin Kisin, who is a Russian expat. Uh, he's a comedian, lives in the United Kingdom, and. Konstantin and Piers take the view that Ukraine is the innocent in the Banderistan war, that Putin is the aggressor, that Russia is the aggressor, and take the view that there is a whole army of pro-Putin shills like Jackson Hinkle who've popped up because 
they think they're striking a blow for the counterculture by being pro-Putin and against the West. And of course, they completely miss the point. They completely misunderstand why the war started. Konstantin Kisin himself stated his wife is from that part of Ukraine, from the Donbass region, uh, and she's, you know, she's she's very much against Russia and what they've done in Donbass. She doesn't understand why Russia's invaded and so on and so forth. He thinks Russia's war is a completely unprovoked war of aggression. And Putin is a madman and a dictator and an autocrat and a tyrant, etc. And Jackson Hinkle appeared on their show, uh, well, on Piers' show. And Piers Morgan is not someone for whom I have any real respect. He is the establishment shill of establishment shills. He has always been very malleable in terms of his opinions. Now, there's nothing wrong with changing your opinion when the facts change. I've done that many times myself. I've, I've changed my opinion on Russia substantially over the last 10 years or so, uh, especially over the last seven years. So I, I first visit to Russia was 2017. And before that, if you read the Russia, the, the post related to Russia on my site, I would generally subscribe to the view that Russia was actually quite a weak economy. It was entirely oil and gas dependent. Putin was kind of an autocrat and a dictator. And Russia wasn't really, you know, a serious power to, 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 to worry about on the world stage. And then I went there in 2017 and I just completely changed my mind because I was like, this place is absolutely amazing. And it really is. I mean, Russia is a phenomenal country when you go there. But Jackson came on to this show and just completely demolished them with facts and evidence. He pointed out very clear evidence for Ukrainian aggression against the people of Donbass. Konstantin tried to disparage him, belittle him by saying, well, you've never visited Donbass, you have no idea. Well, okay, well, fine. I mean, this is not a matter of dispute that 14,000 people have died in Donbass thanks to, uh, before February 2022, thanks to Ukrainian shelling of civilian populations in Donbass. The people, the very people they claimed with their own, it is not a matter of debate that neo-Nazis exist in Ukraine and actual Nazis, not the neo-Nazi LARPing types, the actual Nazis are in there. It's not a matter of debate that far-right, I mean, completely lunatic far-right elements exist in Ukraine. It is not a matter of debate that while there are Jews in power in Ukraine, they are also very much in bed with these neo-Nazi elements. This is None of this is surprising, and yet Piers, as usual, has absolutely no capacity for self-reflection and no capacity for understanding. He's, frankly, he's a bit of an idiot. I mean, if you've seen what he's had to say about COVID, about the scamdemic, about the plandemic, all of that stuff, about how he criticized people who refuse to wear masks and refuse to obey lockdowns, he is purely a creature of the controlled opposition. Nothing more than that. He's just a loudmouth. He's not particularly bright. He comes across as, as articulate, but he's really not. And he's, he's, a thorough, he's, he's a thoroughly mediocre person. And I have no problem saying that. Um, but Jackson on his show took him apart, took apart Constantine as well. But then it was his subsequent comments where he said, uh, where basically... Uh, Piers and Konstantin accused Jackson, while he was having some connection issues, 
of being uh, essentially kind of a ultra right wing, far right sort of uh, ultra capitalist type of guy. And he said, no, no, I'm not. I'm a Stalinist. I'm a, I'm a communist. I'm a Stalinist. And I, that made me sit up and go, okay, this is a bad idea. Um, and this is not the only person I've seen espousing these views. If you follow my Telegram channel, you'll see all the channels that I follow because I post content from them all the time. And you'll see, you know, probably on, on, a, on a busy day, you'll see well over a hundred forwarded posts from me. And if I'm forwarding about a, over a hundred posts, you can be sure I'm scanning through over 300 posts from various sources. And one of those sources is a channel called Dondas Dievushka, which uh, the woman behind it is a, a, a lady named Sarah. And if you go look her up, she's, um, there's, a, there's a, a piece on her, in fact, if you go to RT. And again, you need a VPN to access RT in the West. Uh, I would very much recommend it. Yeah, Sarah Bills. She is the face or the woman behind Donbass Dievushka, and she was a former uh, Navy technician. Uh, none of this, I'm not exposing anybody's details. Let's be clear about this. The, all of this comes from an article from 26th of April, 2023. It's on RT. Uh, this is not news. The Donbass Dievushka channel has since been rebranded into DD Geopolitics. None of this is news. It's all out there. It's all public. Yeah, it's been out there for a long time. So the reason I bring this up is because on this channel, you'll often see lots of posts that are very pro-communist or pro-communist country in nature. If you look at DD Geopolitics, for example, they take a very strongly pro-China line. Uh, they, they view any idea that the, the, that Convid did not, did escape from a Chinese bio lab as ridiculous. It's heretical because it attacks the Chinese government. Uh, they, back when, um, back when, who was it? I think it was, it wasn't Putin visiting North Korea, but it was some sort of visit involving North Korea and Russia. Uh, you'd see lots of posts on Didi, on Donbass Dievushka, as it was at the time, saying North Korea is best Korea. It's like, what kind of lunatic actually believes that? I mean, seriously, how disconnected do you have to be from reality to believe this? And you see a lot of these sentiments coming up over and over and over again. And I understand why, because we're now entering a moment in time where, like in 2008, capitalism seems to have failed. Jackson Hinkle himself says this openly. Capitalism has failed. We need to go back to Stalinism. We need to go back to what Stalin did to revamp and revise the economy. Well, the people who say this honestly are deeply miseducated and deeply uninformed. And I'm sorry to say that about someone I actually admire and respect. In all honesty, I like Jackson. I think he's a good guy. I think he's trying his best to put out the truth as he sees it. He gets on different people from different walks of life. I mean, he's interviewed Vivek Ramaswamy. He thinks Vivek is an idiot. Uh, I tend to concur, frankly. I, I think Mr. Ramaswamy's positions on a number of things are just ridiculous, particularly his idea of arming Taiwan and bringing a second amendment to Taiwan is just, it's absurd on its face. But 
Jackson and others like him, and I want to make it clear, I'm not singling out any one person. I'm just saying this is a trend I've noticed, and these are the people that are most prominent within that trend. People like this say Stalinism is the only way forward. Well, firstly, the people who say this are often the people who have open sponsorships on their channels. I mean, they're the most capitalist people you can imagine. Again, and you know, again, I'm not trying to pick on him, but if you look at Jackson, you look at what he, the, the products he's selling the, and endorsing through his platform, Lear Capital, which uh, if, I mean, I don't get commissions from it, but you know, if you're interested in precious metals investing, Lear Capital is probably a good way to go. Um, Surfshark VPN, he endorses that. He endorses a bunch of different affiliate products for which he gets paid a cut through the marketing process. Nothing wrong with that. I have absolutely no problem with anyone wanting to make money in today's world. It's not an issue. But don't then turn around and say you're a Stalinist, because that's ridiculous. If you believe in what Lenin and Stalin did as models of economic thought and output for the modern world, then you have to acknowledge what they actually did. You cannot call yourself one of their acolytes until and unless you recognize what they did. And the moment you do that, you realize just how dangerous and stupid these ideologies really are. So, for first, from, from the first point, you have to understand why so many young people are reverting back to this view, this highly romanticized, very much rose-colored lenses view of Russia in the 1920s and 30s, after the Bolshevik Revolution, after the transformation of Russia into the USSR, uh, and after the USSR became one of the two global superpowers after World War II. There are a lot of parallels between World War II and today, of course, and you see why Russia is winning today, because it has productive capacity far beyond anything anyone imagined. If you look at just artillery shell production, this is not new. I mean, I'm not saying anything surprising here. Russia right now is capable of producing anywhere between 300,000 and 600,000 artillery shells a month. Nobody knows the exact number, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. The United States, all of the United States, has one factory which can produce 155 millimeter artillery rounds. The Russians use 152 millimeter rounds, um, but they have a much greater variety of rounds they can produce these days. So they can produce dumb rounds, which they produce in industrial quantities, and they can also produce Krasnopol guided rounds. And the Russians have never given up that ability to manufacture both. In fact, the Russians have always started from the position that you mass manufacture dumb rounds in huge quantities, and then you build out the production lines that kind of bolt on top of those dumb rounds and create smart rounds. So their MLRS rockets, for example, most of them are dumb rounds. They just fire off rockets which are unguided and fly on purely ballistic trajectories, crash into things, blow up, and, well, kill lots of people. But they fire in mass, in huge volumes. The Smirch and uh, Uragan and, yeah, the, the Smirch and Uragan systems, the tornado and hurricane systems, um, 
are smart guided weapon systems. And they use specific rockets that are roughly analogous to the uh, HIMARS guided missiles that, uh, that um, uh, Lockheed Martin produces for their um, uh, sort of wheeled and tracked launchers, the GLMR, whatever it's called, GLMR, M GMLRS um, launching systems, the M270 and the M whatever it was, the other one. Uh, which have been sent to Ukraine in large quantities and have been destroyed in large quantities, often by Lancet drones. So the United States, because dumb rockets are not profitable, concentrated on building dumb uh, on smart rockets, which are highly profitable because obviously they're more complicated. So Lockheed Martin inevitably concentrated on that, which was more profitable. The Russians, by contrast, have never forgotten the need to maintain huge volumes of fire and have never fallen for the ploy that they need to upgrade their systems and, and use smart munitions all the time. They've never fallen for that, that um, idea. So they've always kept back their productive capacity. And that is the reason why, as I said earlier, they can manufacture somewhere between 300,000, 600,000 artillery rounds a month. The entire United States, all of it, produces 24,000 rounds now a month, and it used to be 15,000. The whole of Europe produces about 4,000 rounds a month. Now, do a little math, and you're going to realize very quickly that the, the Russians are capable of now of producing between 3.6 million and 7.2 million artillery rounds a year. The United States can barely produce 1 million. Not even, actually. It can't produce 1 million rounds right now. It might get to the point where it can produce 1 million rounds sometime in 2025. And when you see the return of industrial-scale warfare in Ukraine, as that article by the Royal United Services Institute from last year about a year ago, actually, pointed out, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vashinin, and uh, well, it, was, it was basically him who wrote about it. He wrote that executive summary in which he essentially said, warfare now, the, the outcome of war, uh, it is economic capacity and productive capacity that determines the outcome of war. Now, that never changed. That was always the case. But for 20 years, the West deceived itself into thinking it could win wars through low-intensity counterinsurgency type operations and never understood what real war means. And we're now finding that out. That much is very clear. Well, you can see why people like Jackson Hinkle will look at that and say, clearly the Stalinist model works. Clearly the state-led model works. And we should all adopt the state-led model because look at China. Look at how great China is. Look at how amazing their infrastructure is. Look at how amazing their economy is. Uh, therefore, we should adopt what China does. Uh, give me a second. I'm going to lower my standing desk here. I love standing desks, by the way. If you don't have one, get one. They are uh, tremendously useful. But um, he never quite... People like him, again, I don't want to single him out. People like him never quite wrap their heads around what Stalinism and Leninism meant for the ordinary person they can never wrap their heads around what socialism actually means. 
and how it ultimately fails to deliver on its promises. And this is where Jackson and others like him completely misunderstand the reason for Russia's modern-day success. They don't get it because they haven't thought about it. So if you look at what Leninism and Stalinism meant, they essentially meant complete state control over all factors of production. Leninism led to complete collectivization of all farming and all industry. And once the Russians, uh, once the Bolsheviks actually won the Russian Civil War, it, it didn't take very long for the entirety of the Soviet Union at the time to collapse into famine. That's not a joke. I mean, that's exactly what happened. The Soviet Union between 1922 and 24 collapsed into famine and deindustrialization because inevitably the problem with socialism of any kind, it doesn't matter what degree you go into socialism, it doesn't matter um, how, how much you try to justify it, the problem with socialism has always been fundamentally a lack of a pricing mechanism. And this is not new either. I mean, Ludwig von Mises over a hundred years ago in his, uh, basically his, uh, what was it called? Uh, epigraph or some, some you know, mono, monograph or some, whatever the word is. Um, but it was, a, it was a specific essay that he wrote and it was called Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. It's an absolute classic and it's well worth reading. And in that paper, he pointed out the problem with a socialist system where there is common ownership of all factors of production and there is no private ownership of land or capital is there is no pricing mechanism. So there is no way to efficiently allocate or distribute goods and services and intermediate stage products that you need to build out more advanced products. It's impossible. Now you can try to plan your way around it, but you're never going to succeed because your plans can never keep up with the need for price information. It's impossible. And he proved definitively from first principles, you cannot argue with his logic because it is entirely deductive. It starts from an axiom and then just goes deductively down to the impossibility of those calculations that you cannot calculate or plan your way out of the problem. The Marxist economists of the time tried to refute him by saying, well, what if we just come up with some theoretical prices? Okay, well, what are they linked to? Absolutely nothing. So then why are you surprised when it doesn't work? And this is exactly what we saw with the Soviet Union. By 1924, the failures of Leninism were so severe that Lenin had to back off and institute the new economic plan, which essentially was an attempt to reintroduce some market mechanisms into pricing and industry. And it did work for a while until Lenin died and Stalin took over. And then Stalin started up the five-year plans. And his goal, I mean, Stalin's goal was basically to industrialize the USSR as fast as possible. Now, he succeeded, it is true. He succeeded at delivering enormous uh, factory output and industrial output in a very, very short time. That is a fact. It is a fact that because of Stalin's reforms and his brutality, uh, the USSR was able eventually to build out factories in the Urals, behind the Urals actually, which produced something on the order of 40,000 tanks a year. 
which is what I, I think there's a, a quote from Hitler where, uh, you know, he, he was shocked to realize that uh, the Russians had that level of productive capacity. He was absolutely horrified. And he realized, yeah, maybe I made a giant mistake by invading Russia. Now, obviously, there's a lot of theories as to whether Hitler was trying to forestall a Soviet invasion of Europe. There's the icebreaker thesis and so on and so forth. I won't get into that now. But the point is, Stalin did industrialize the USSR, at least to a degree. But at what cost? We know of millions of lives lost. There is, there is considerable debate on this subject, I know. And if you talk to Grandpa Grumpus, Andrei Martyanov, for example, he will shoot down the idea that uh, Stalin was truly as horrendous a figure as, as Western historians paint him out to be. A lot of Western historians will quote a figure of between uh, 20 million and 60 million dead during Stalin's time, not including the dead from World War II. Now, they will also quote uh, the Solzhenitsyn, you know, Gulag archipelago figures saying there were tens of millions of people trapped in the Gulags. Uh, the fact is, the figures from the Soviet Union at the time themselves flatly contradict this. It was nowhere near that number. Robert Conquest's lowest end estimate of the number of excess deaths during Stalin's time uh, is about 9 million. And most historians that I've seen typically accept somewhere around 20 million, plus the 27 million Soviet citizens who died as a result of what they call the Great Patriotic War, which is World War II. So overall, you're talking about 47 million dead. It could be as high as 55 million. But if you then look at the population figures across the whole of the Soviet Union, something doesn't add up. And that is the basis of Martyanov's uh, disagreement with standard Western narratives about Stalin and how horrible a figure he was. And yet, there is no question Stalin had an extremely deleterious impact on human life and society during his time. It was during Stalin's time that you had Lysenkoism. It was during his time, and Lysenkoism was just like, wow, it was, it was stupid beyond belief. Um, it flew directly in the face of all biological science. Uh, you know, if you go look it up, basically, Andrei Lysenko, uh, Lysenko, uh, Lysenkoism was, you know, uh, a, no, not him. Trofim, uh, yeah, Trofim Lysenko, sorry. Andrei Lysenko is hunt for Red October, my bad. Um, no, Trofim Lysenko, uh, you know, he, this guy was, he was, an ag he was an agronomist whose theories about genetics uh, well, he, he basically threw out all the kind of theories of genetics. Um, and he just made up a bunch of stuff. I mean, he just he flatly made it up. And you saw this problem endemic throughout Soviet society. You saw it endemic throughout the people reporting on Soviet society. Um, you know, the, the, the guy who won that, uh, the Pulitzer Prize, whose name I am, of course, drawing a blank upon, uh, I've criticized him repeatedly on this subject. Uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize reporter who lied about uh, Soviet famines. 
I remember this guy's name, but yeah, that's him. Of course, Walter Durante. I keep forgetting his name. It's just so stupid. It's a sign I'm getting old. But I mean, Walter Durante, you know, he, he lied openly uh, about the, the horrendous conditions in the Soviet Union. He said it's Everything's great here. And meanwhile, there were actual famines happening in the Soviet Union. There, was, there were people starving to death. Uh, he lied about the Holodomor, uh, or the Golodomor, uh, as the Russians call it, the Holodomor, as, as Ukrainians do. This is the legacy of, of Stalin, of starvation, of brutal treatment of the, of the kulaks, of the, the landowners, the peasants, uh, the peasant-level landowners. Uh, extremely rough treatment of the people who actually owned things and were productive and did things. The, the total destruction of the Russian middle class at the time. Now, that made a comeback after Stalin's death because Soviet society actually underwent a series of very powerful reforms uh, behind the scenes. And Martyanov talks about this in his book, uh, in his first book, Losing Military Supremacy. He talks about how Soviet society changed during the late 50s and 60s into something very different from Stalin's time and much more actually Western-facing than most people realize. But what was the legacy of Stalinism? It was a legacy of colossal failure. And this is the thing that people like Jackson and others of his ilk do not understand. They do not do their homework. And it really annoys me when this happens. If you look at the size of the Soviet economy, the whole Soviet economy by 1985 was about the size, actually smaller than the U.S. economy. Reagan knew this. This is uh, something you'll read in uh, Reagan's War uh, by Peter Schweitzer. Reagan knew from CIA intelligence reports he was getting through Bill Casey and through the analysts working for Bill Casey at the time that the entire economy of Russia, just Russia alone, the Russian SSR, was about the size of California's at the time. And the United States alone could outproduce the entire Warsaw Pact. The Soviet Union couldn't feed itself by 1980. It couldn't. It never really could throughout its history. Look at Russia today, and Russia is this giant exporter of food. It's going to have the biggest harvest it's ever had this year. Look at where it was 30 years ago. It couldn't feed its own people. Despite having the most amazing natural resources, the, the greatest amount of arable land, uh, in Ukraine they had the Chernozemlya, the, the black soil, uh, in the Dnieper, you know, around the, 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 the Dnieper Basin. That is the, some of the most fertile soil on earth. And these people couldn't feed themselves. You would see ex-Soviet, well, you would see Soviet officials going from, and Scott Ritter talks about this in his book, uh, Disarmament in a Time of Perestroika. You would see Soviet officials leaving the Soviet Union, going on trips to the United States, expecting to see what the Soviet propaganda told them. You know, crime in the streets, litter, broken societies, poor people everywhere. And they came back broken men because they were like, I've been to the capitalist world and they're, they are so much better off than we are. They, they have so much. I mean, even the poorest of their people, even the poorest of their uh, lowest income people, except for the beggars on the street, even their most hard, hard done by people still live better. 
than our average citizens in the Soviet Union. And they came back just shattered. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't believe what they'd seen. That was why the Soviet system collapsed, because it was a system beset by contradictions. Stalinism didn't work. That's why uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev uh, essentially had to reform away a lot of that nonsense. Now, what did Stalin do right? Well, he developed an incredibly powerful Soviet military. That's true. However, the roots of Soviet military success did not come from Stalin's time. They came from the long, 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 long history of Russian success in war. Keep in mind, Russia has been a, 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 a cultural or a country civilization since basically 862 AD. I mean, okay, you can argue about the dates, yeah, fine. You could say, well, it's more like 900-something. Moscow is about a 960-year-old city, something like that. Um, whereas uh, uh, Novgorod of Prince Rurik dates back to 862. Now, Novgorod of Prince Rurik and his wedding to Princess Anna of the, uh, of the Rus, that is the foundation of what, that was the foundation of what we would call uh, Kievskaya Rus, the Kievan Rus, which were the predecessors of all of the various Russian states, including, well, Malorossiya, Ukraine, effectively. So the point is that entire thousand year history has been one of constant, near constant warfare. The Russian general staff has been in existence for longer than the United States has as a country. So the notion that Russians don't know how to make war is stupid. I mean, the Red Army inherited priceless lessons from the Imperial Russian Army. It inherited a lot of bad doctrine, but inherited tremendous amounts of good doctrine. I mean, it's a fact that when Napoleon waltzed into Russia and came to Moscow, after, um, after the mauling that he received at the Battle of Borodino, uh, I believe that was before. Yeah, actually it was. Because uh, Napoleon occupied Moscow uh, in, I think it was 18, late 18, yeah, 1812. So 14th September to 19th October, uh, 1812. And the Battle of Borodino was earlier than that, I believe. Uh, yeah, 7th September. So uh, Kutuzov essentially had to stop um, Napoleon. He had to delay Napoleon and allow the people of Moscow to kind of pull out from, from the city. And it was, it was very much a Pyrrhic victory for Napoleon. But when Napoleon actually got to Moscow, he discovered to his shock and horror that the Russians, you know, and, and from Borodino itself as well, he discovered to his amazement, to his horror, the Russians had more artillery pieces than he did. Napoleon was not used to this. He did not understand how that was possible. Well, the Russians have long regarded artillery as the god of war. They literally call it that. Artilleria, bog voini. Artillery is the god of war. That's actually what they call it. Or the queen of the battlefield. Um, that's another name they use for it. So, you know, artillery systems are not new to the Russians. The, the idea of producing stuff, of outproducing your enemy, is not new to Russians. This has been part of their philosophy of war for decades. 
So it is very important, actually centuries, it is very important not to misunderstand the source of Russia's strength today. And in case you need more of a reminder as to why socialism is such a terrible idea, let's take it from the man that people like Jackson admire so much. I admire him too. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And here's what he had to say. Знаете, у нас говорят те, кто не жалеют о крушении Советского Союза, у того нет сердца. А кто жалеем у того нет головы. What did he just say? You know, uh, we say, they say uh, about us, uh, of us, uh, those who do not miss, uh, who do not mourn the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, they have no heart. And those who want it back the way it was, effectively, they have no brain, they have no head, uh, is, is what he said. Uh, so literally, uh, what, he, what he specifically said was, whoever, I mean, if you want to interpret it literally, whoever does not regret the collapse of the Soviet Union has no heart, whoever wants to recreate it in its former form has no head. And uh, he also said, I mean, this was, this was not a direct quote from Putin, this is him kind of paraphrasing others who paraphrased others, but this is the sentiment that Putin had. Putin made it very clear. The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He's right. For Russia, from a Russian perspective, there is no question that is true. To understand this, again, you have to understand what Russia lost. Russia lost millions of her own people, ethnic Russians who now found themselves living in non-Russian lands. It lost huge amounts of its productive industries. I mean, look at what the Russians built in Kazakhstan, Baikonur Cosmodrome. That is a Russian creation. I mean, it, it sits in Kazakhstan because of its desirable location, but it's not Kazakh built, it's Russian built. If you look at all of the industries that Ukraine walked away with after independence, they celebrated their independence today. I mean, I'm recording this on August 24th, 2023. They declared independence on August 24th, about you know, 30 some years ago. They walked away with so much by way of productive, capable industries. It's not even funny. I mean, if you compare the size of East Germany's economy, actually all of Germany's economy, with the economy of the Ukrainian SSR at the time, they were about equal, roughly speaking. Ukraine had by far the greatest productive potential of any country in mainland Europe. That's not a joke. Go look it up. The level of productive capacity they had, the level of electricity generation, coal generation, oil and natural gas reserves, arable land, uh, gas transit capacity, uh, wheat production, everything. They had everything you could imagine for the purpose of building a manufacturing superpower. And look at what Ukraine is today. I mean, they were building, the, the Russians were building aircraft carriers. They were building Kiev-class and uh, Ulyanovsk-class, Ulyanovsk? Uh, yeah, whatever it was, the, what's it called? The, uh, drawing a blank again. Their, uh, 
their uh, not not Arnold Gorshkov, Ulyanov uh, class carrier, I believe it was, but um, uh, it was yeah the Soviet class Ulyanovsk carrier. Yeah, they they wanted to build that Ulyanovsk class carrier, which was a nuclear powered supercarrier, uh, but never actually happened. I mean, it, it got scrapped. And then there is another aircraft carrier. Ah, yeah, Admiral Kuznetsov. I keep forgetting this. It's like so annoying. Uh, Admiral Kuznetsov. Uh, there were several of these carriers built, and this was the Kuznetsov class carrier with the ski ramp. Uh, several of which were, well, one of which was built and then sold to scrap. Another which was sold to China in basically, you know, barely functional form. And they've now rebuilt it into the Liaoning. Uh, the Ukrainians sold that unfinished hull. And uh, Varyag, um, that was the original ship Varyag, which was then sold to China and is now the Liaoning. And uh, the Kuznetsov class carrier like the only one, Admiral Kuznetsov, serves in the Russian Navy today, but it's it's riddled with problems. I mean, it has so many faults, it's not even funny. Uh, it spends huge amounts of time in dry dock just because it, it's, it's impossible to use. But the point is, the Russians were building those at in Kiev's shipyards, in the Nikolaev and Kherson shipyards. They were building enormous vessels that could compete with anything the West had except the Nimitz-class supercarriers. That's how much industry Ukraine had. And that's what Russia lost. And it's not just Russia that uh, failed in implementing any kind of socialist paradise. It's not just Russia. So when people come along and say, capitalism has failed, we need Stalinism to replace it. You really have to look at them and say, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Because if you look at the track record of this philosophy, anywhere it's been tried, it's always, every single time, led to failure. If you look at China and you look at um, what Mao Zedong tried to implement with the Great Leap Forward, it wasn't a Great Leap Forward, it was a Great Leap Backward. 20 million people, at least, died of starvation. Because, essentially, instead of focusing on agricultural techniques that worked, tens and hundreds of millions of Chinese people went out and tried things that didn't work. Uh, they, they uprooted the workforce and instead of having people planting food in the fields, rice and other uh, agricultural staples, they had them building backyard furnaces to produce iron because the target was to produce more iron than the United States could. Well, in the first place, that was stupid because you know, you're just measuring yourself on one axis of success. And in the second place, the only thing that resulted from most of those furnaces was very, very poor quality pig iron. It bent, it it, it wasn't formed correctly, the, the, the raw material wasn't useful, you couldn't use it to produce higher quality steel. It was useless. So huge amounts of resources went to waste for no good reason. And millions of people died. All of this is extensively documented in the Black Book of Communism. Well worth reading. I've got it, you know, sitting in storage somewhere and I'm hoping to go through it in detail someday. The victims of socialism, as implemented under a Stalinist regime and among others, stretch to well over a hundred million people.
worldwide during the 20th century. So please don't tell me this is a good system to emulate. It's not. If you look at India, it, India today has probably the world's second or third largest economy. And I would argue it's probably the second largest economy in the world in GDP purchasing power parity terms. Now, that's obviously a flawed metric. Yeah, fine, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I don't think the United States has a $25 trillion economy. I think that's that a lot of that is fake. I mean, it, a quarter of the U.S. economy is financial services and financialized financial services, which do not add value. So once you strip out the effects of debt and all the other problems associated with debt, the, the true size of the U.S. economy is much, 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 much smaller. I mean, it's probably on the order of 14, 15, million, 15 trillion U.S. dollars in terms of what people can actually buy without the use of debt and credit. China's economy is well in excess of that. I mean, well in excess of 20 trillion. Uh, but they also have a serious debt problem. So obviously you have to dial back that amount with accounting for the debt and the constraints that imposes upon consumption. With India's economy, uh, it's a very young economy. It's a very rapidly growing economy. It's young in the sense the, the workforce is young. And that economy is easily 10, 11 trillion dollars in PPP terms. So we're talking an enormously powerful economy. And yet, in 1991, well, in the, in the early 90s, rather, uh, India essentially ran out of foreign exchange reserves because it couldn't defend its rupee anymore. The, the, the policies of socialism, of, of closed autarky, had failed. Socialism didn't work. I mean, part of the reason why India has so many poor people to this day, why it's still held back by this enormous inertial mass, of extremely poor people is because of those socialist policies, because Nehru and his successors decided they didn't want capitalism, they didn't want uh, a, a market-driven economy. Now, there's nothing wrong with a market-driven economy with a generous welfare system. You can have that, but you have to have open liberal trade policies to do it. The Scandies are able to do that. They have very generous social welfare systems, but they have a very open market economy as well. You, you can have both. You can have a relatively closed economy with a reasonably sort of intact social safety net. Russia has that. With a relatively low tax rate, Russia has that too. But to do that, you have to have a very, very powerful resource base. And you have to have a lot of technical know-how. You need to have a very highly educated population. You need to have a lot of the benefits that did come out of the Stalinist regime. And I'm not saying Stalin... Stalin's time in power was all bad. Um, a lot of the greatest technical achievements of the Soviet Union, a lot of the knowledge, the, the education, the learning came from that time period. However, it's also worth pointing out, Russia, Imperial Russia, was a very, very highly cultured and accomplished society. So it's not like um, Stalin was starting from zero. He wasn't. Contrary to the myths, he was not starting from scratch. He actually had a tremendous accumulated base of human capital and economic capital to work with. And he built the Soviet Union out of that. But the, in the process of doing so, the Stalinist philosophy ended up causing enormous suffering and enormous economic damage. 
and we should by no means seek to emulate that. It's a terrible idea. If you look at China, what is China today? China today is not actually a communist country and it hasn't been for a long, long time. People really need to get it out of their heads that China is a communist country. If you strip away the emotive language around the term, the proper term for Chinese uh, economic and political structures today is actually fascist. And again, you have to avoid the loaded language. I understand why people react to it, but this is the truth. In a fascist system, essentially the state controls all factors of production, but private enterprise, private property ownership is encouraged. And you have the opportunity to uh, put state-owned land to private use. So the state essentially acts as the lessor uh, for uh, the land. And the lessee is the private individual who builds factories and offices and shopping malls and you know stores and what have you on, on top of that land. And that is the basis of China's success today. I mean, it's one of the reasons why China is highly successful. But make no mistake, China has very serious structural problems. I mean, really serious ones. Uh, very, very large debt overhang, aging population, uh, serious problems with water and natural resources, not enough arable land, um, major dependencies on trade routes, which is why, where the, the one brick, one, the one belt, one road initiative comes from. It's essentially an attempt to move away from sea-based uh, supply chains, which are very vulnerable to Western intervention, and to establish high-speed rail and overland routes that will bring in resources from Russia, from Africa, from the Middle East, in ways that the West cannot interdict, because you know it's traveling over the Eurasian landmass, which is gigantic. Uh, that is the true essence of Chinese strength. Uh, they've invested heavily in manufacturing and technology, but they've not done it in a completely top-down way. They've Yes, they have state direction, but they also have private capital employing it. So when people say, well, you know, I'm a Stalinist and I believe that Stalin's approach is the right way to do it. Really? What do you mean by Stalin's approach? Do you mean the results that uh, the, the, essentially the, red, the, the, the terror that destroyed the back of the, the Red Army before Hitler's invasion? Do you mean the, the famines that racked the USSR? that destroyed its ability to feed itself and from which it never recovered. I mean, one of the reasons why Reagan was able to force Gorbachev and other Soviet leaders to the negotiating table was because he essentially cut up, he tore up grain deals. He tore up trade agreements with the Soviet Union. He said, we're not exporting our grain to you anymore. Without that grain, the Soviet Union couldn't survive. They couldn't keep their population fed. So, you know, is this the legacy of Stalinism that you want to follow? Because if you follow Stalinism in a modern context, what you're actually advocating for is a return to policies that don't work. You're advocating for a return to collectivization, to industrialization, to a move away from cleaner air, from cleaner water, from back towards a policy of essentially just Reindustrializing at all costs, regardless of whether it's profitable, regardless of whether it makes sense, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. You're going to cause such massive disruptions and so many problems, and it's it's so devoid of economic sense. Now, why does Russia make it work? Well, Russia makes it work by essentially maintaining state control over resources, 
while using private enterprise and private capital to make things happen. This again is not new. It's not my idea. It's not my analysis. If you go to a post that I wrote about a year ago called The Evolution of the Neo-Tsar, I actually looked at the introduction to his PhD thesis in economics. And you you can find it online. It's translated. And you will see exactly what he wrote. Now, of course, there's some argument over whether Putin actually wrote his PhD thesis or whether an economics professor at Moscow State University or whatever it was, uh, I think it might have been either Mgimo or uh, MSU, I forget which. But it may have been a professor who ghost wrote it for him. Okay, fine. Maybe it was ghostwritten. Maybe Putin didn't earn a dissertation uh, award. Well, look at what he actually, or whoever, wrote. If you actually read the thesis or the introduction, it's exactly Russia's modern policy. State control of assets managed by private capital. That's all. And that is the secret to Russia's success. This is not Stalinist. This is not, it is not communist. It is not socialist. It is, again, you'll have to excuse the term, fascist. And Russians will react violently to that. I understand why. Let me modify it, therefore, to say it is corporatist. That's really what it is. It's a corporatist philosophy. And it works. It really works. Because it means state ownership of critical industries, which are ring-fenced, and which act according to state directives on certain things. But the rest of the economy is free to move and innovate and, and manufacture and do things. And that's the Russian recipe for success. That's the reason why Russia's productive capacity far exceeds Germany's. Far exceeds. The German economy is more efficient. That's a fact. But the Russian economy is vastly more productive in terms of what it can actually produce. If you actually look at the Russian economy, they produce as much steel in one year as the entire United States does. And that should tell you something, considering they have half the population. So anyway, I hope uh, this has been illuminating. I hope this has been useful to people. I want people to understand very clearly. Communism, Stalinism, socialism in all of its forms, these are evil philosophies. They are stupid philosophies. They are not workable. And people need to get this into their heads. Just because modern Western liberal democratic neoliberal economic policies have failed does not necessitate a return to failed policies from the past. By all means, learn from what Russia has done and achieved and copy its successes where possible. But by no means should we return to policies that have created vast amounts of human suffering that have led to starvation and economic collapse. It's just, it, it's, a, it's just dumb. I mean, please don't fall for this nonsense. People like Jackson and people like him should be much better educated about the past than they really are. And they're just not. Anyway, um, it's getting uh, rather on in terms of time. I am just about out of it. This is getting close to an hour. So let me wrap up here. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. By all means, please uh, check out the links in the description box for uh, cool products that will enhance your freedom and your ability to uh, surf the web and access information without problems. 
and pay a visit to the site if you have not already done so. Please subscribe to the Telegram channel, the Podbean podcast, and the site itself. And I will catch you on the next one. This is Didactic Mind, episode 112, The Itchy Red Blanket. And I am Didact, signing off.